Well, this Lord's Day, I come with a coda, if you will, to what we spoke on last Lord's Day. Because in the meantime, the false teachers and blasphemers have responded. If you remember, we spoke of how unbelievable it is that some false teachers dispute what the Lord's bitter cup was, which He described on the night that He was betrayed unto death. Christ told His disciples and the mob that came to take Him away, the cup which My Father hath given Me, shall I not drink it? This was in response to Peter's attempt to use violence to block Jesus from being taken away, falsely accused, found guilty, and crucified. The reason false teachers object to Christ's clear teaching about the cup is that they reject substitutionary atonement. They refuse to believe God's word that Jesus was punished by God for the sins of His people that were laid upon Him at the cross. Heretics don't like the idea that God's wrath fell on Jesus in our place. Therefore, they will not believe that the cup pictured wrath and judgment poured out by God upon His dear Son. Instead, these false teachers try to claim that the cup Christ refers to is somehow a joyous cup, a prophetical cup, perhaps Elijah's cup of the Passover. Often in Scripture, the metaphor of a cup is used to describe God's wrath poured out on sinners. Metaphorically, it means what God has given to people for good or ill to suffer. In the immediate context, Christ had several times made explicit references to His imminent suffering and death. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover before I suffer, Christ said. The Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, Christ said. Then, of course, at the Lord's Supper, Christ declared, This is my body which is given for you, meaning his physical body, which was sacrificed at Calvary unto death. Jesus followed up immediately, This is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. These statements clearly describe Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice to take away the sin of his people whom he redeemed. Jesus is God's Lamb slain in the place of sinners. Christ next warns that God would smite him and his sheep would be scattered. He is referencing the prophecy of Zechariah in which God ordered his sword to awake against his shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and smite him. The very same cup from the Father which Christ said he must drink was clearly the subject of Christ's tears and prayers just moments before in Gethsemane. It was no happy cup at all, but rather a cup of terror to Jesus, a cup of great suffering and wrath something to be avoided if at all possible. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood and cried out to his Father to let the cup pass from him if it be possible. But Christ immediately submits to his Father's will in the matter, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. As John Gill pointed out, Christ knew what God his Father had ordained and what must be done by himself at the cross. He knew the cup was wrath. He must suffer in the place of his people whom he must redeem. The cup was the horror and experience of God's wrath and the curse of judgment. The possibility of the cup being withdrawn was raised due to Christ's human revulsion at enduring all those things. And while it was hypothetically possible for God to withdraw the cup, yet it was actually impossible given God's Word, Christ's teachings to His disciples about the death He would die, and His determination to save His people by drinking it. 
So that cup was what God the Father had ordained for His Son to go through. The cruelty of the cross, the unjust trial and condemnation, the mockings, the shame, the crucifixion, His being numbered with the transgressors, being treated as guilty by God under the curse, condemned by God in our place, being forsaken by God unto all judgment, being crushed by God and made an offering for our sin to die for His sheep. All of that was the very cup that Christ must drink. And that is why Christ insisted just moments later in drinking that bitter cup. His Father delighted in seeing Jesus drink that cup because it was the saving of His beloved, helpless, sinful people. No wonder that false teachers who deny substitutionary atonement of Jesus must lie about that bitter cup. What it meant to Jesus and why he was so distressed at the prospect of drinking it, while yet rebuking his disciples when they tried to stop him. These heretics mock God's providence and working of all things after the counsel of his will. Scripture teaches that everything that happens does so through God's determination beforehand, and yet men are judged for their sins. But these blasphemers mock us when we pray for deliverance, sneering, Well, if you believe that whatever God ordained will take place, then why do you pray for deliverance or consider why men sin or rebuke error and falsehood? Why do you complain about wicked men when according to your doctrine God decrees the acts of all wicked men? The answer is that we look to the example of Christ in the garden. He knew the eternal will and purpose of God, that He should lay down His life as a sacrifice and bear all His people's sin, And yet Jesus prayed for deliverance. He mourned and wept over that bitter cup. Those who mock these biblical teachings about God's absolute power, sovereignty, and control over all things would clap their hands across Christ's mouth in Gethsemane to shut Him up because He already knew what God's purpose and outcome would be. In the same way, believers have a right to come before God in prayer, to rebuke sinners, to cry out for rescue, to plead with God to change hearts even as we understand that God determines all things from the beginning of time. We are simply following Christ's example. God determines all things and we are perfectly correct. To wonder why, ask questions, plead for help. Those two views are perfectly consistent for the Lord Jesus and also for His people. We are following after the example of Jesus. His example proves there is no incompatibility between God's eternal decree as to all things and His people's desiring that He might work salvation for poor sinners and rescue His people from trouble and oppression. Those who mock God's people for holding to these twin realities are blaspheming Jesus because He is our example in all these matters. Have you noticed that Christ's bitter cup which He drank dry to save us has become for us a cup of blessing? At the Lord's table we partake of the cup which represents the awful sacrifice of body and blood that Jesus made to save us. Ours is a cup that displays Christ's love for us and His salvation perfected for us. When He drank that bitter cup, the Father gave Him. The bitter cup for Christ has become a cup of blessing and rejoicing for His people. The same things done to Christ that were bitter at the time are now received by us through faith as matters of the highest shouting 
and rejoicing. I had a friend on Twitter who promoted last Sunday's sermon, highly recommended it, and particularly pointed out the argument against those who mock God's decree and ordaining of all things and basically say that if we believe that, we shouldn't pray, we shouldn't question why things happen, we shouldn't rebuke sin, because after all, God determined all those things to take place. And he said, how do you square Christ's prayer as the sermon described last Lord's Day? How do you square His prayer with His knowledge that all the things that were to take place to Him were determined beforehand? Well, you might like to know how these false teachers and heretics respond to such a challenge. Well, one of them said, you know, Christ was not actually murdered because He laid down His life for His people. So that makes it not wrong for those people to crucify Him because He volunteered. And they raised the spurious example of the soldier who falls on a grenade to save his comrades. Was he murdered? Of course, they're mixing up categories and sowing a great deal of confusion. But you remember the only answer you have to give is that Stephen, when he was martyred, preached that the rulers of Israel, the people of Israel, are Christ's betrayers and murderers. That ought to be conclusive as to the question whether Christ was murdered by the Romans and the Jewish leaders and the people. But the main heretical reply to the argument which was raised last Lord's Day is that Jesus didn't actually know God had decreed that He must die to save us. For example, one person who calls himself preacher man said Jesus didn't even know when His second coming was to be. He knew what the Father told Him. Speculation on what He knew is just that. And then he said again, Jesus knew what He learned growing up. He knew what the Father told Him. The exact future was not in His incarnation, in my opinion. So this man is saying that it's not fair to say that Christ actually knew what God had decreed should happen to Him in His humanity. And so therefore, He was free to pray that it change because He didn't know that it was fixed yet because the Father hadn't revealed that to Him. Another person, of course, said similar things. All for His glory said, why in your theology did God pray for that? Sorry, not listening to John's sermon, but open to hearing you provide the answer. And then my friend responded, why did Jesus pray, if possible, let the cup pass when He knew with certainty God had determined that it would not? John's sermon points out how you mock Jesus with such objections. So the question then is, what was done to Jesus at Calvary as decreed by God wasn't a sin of murder, these people claim. And Jesus didn't necessarily know God's will that He must die. So His prayer was perfectly reasonable. As to the crime that God decreed happened to His Son, naturally Stephen's witness we've already mentioned, but consider Acts 2 at verse 22, well-known passage. 
Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now that determinate counsel means that God had ordained, He had determined according to His will beforehand that Christ should be delivered up Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So here Peter is telling these people that what they did was wicked. That they had slain and crucified the Lord Jesus, whom God Himself delivered up according to His ordination, purpose, and counsel, and determination. So you see the the two are not inconsistent that Christ should have volunteered to lay down His life for His sheep and that God used the people to put Him to death cruelly and murderously. And then Acts chapter 4, we read this morning, verse 24. And this is after the rulers of Israel told Peter and John to stop preaching the name of Jesus. When the church heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. In other words, the all-powerful One who made all things, who by the mouth of Thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And then they pray to God the answer to that question. Why did the world rebel against Christ? the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. We take that as a rhetorical question, but these people understood it to have an actual concrete answer as to why God allowed that, why they did that. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So you see that these believers are praying back to God His Scripture and agreeing that the disobedience, the rebellion against Christ was foretold for the purpose of carrying out whatever God's hand and counsel determined before to be done. So this puts the end to the claim that God did not determine that men should sin, rebel, and murder Messiah. Because it clearly teaches that He did decree that beforehand. And they did do that. And what they did was a crime. And yet it accomplished the will of God in the sacrifice of Jesus. God's eternal decree was carried out by rebellious men, wicked men against Jesus. But what did Jesus know when He prayed in the garden? This is a big question for all believers as to what Jesus in His humanity knew. How He knew it is left largely unexplained in Scripture, but that he knew and what he knew about God's decree that he must die on the cross, there is simply no doubt. And these false teachers are either displaying their abject lack of knowledge of the Scripture or 
they are intentionally lying about the Lord Jesus and His knowledge in His humanity. Christ in His divine nature is God and knows everything forever. This is true of Christ in His divinity. But did all that knowledge necessarily flow to Jesus in His humanity? Well, you know the Scriptures teach that He grew in knowledge and favor with God and man. Apparently He was like a little child and He grew up to be a boy and then He grew up to be a young man and then He grew up to be an adult and He learned things and He was taught things. He learned how to read, all sorts of things. He apparently didn't know all those things in the cradle. So He went through a natural human process of learning. The truth of it is that He probably didn't know in His humanity all the facts that Christ in His deity knows because the human brain has a finite capacity and only holds limited quantities of knowledge. And yet, Jesus' communion with His Father was intimate and profound and something that we can only long for in ourselves. Jesus knew the Father in such a way and received command of His Father in such a way that we can hardly grasp. You know, He told people He didn't say or do anything other than what His Father told Him to say and to do. Now, you know, none of us can say that. We can't say that we're obedient and that God's told us exactly what words to say and exactly what acts to take. We can't say that, but Christ could. Well, how could He know those things? There was that intimate relationship with His Father. He fulfilled all the work commanded by His Father. And He studied the Scripture. He quoted it repeatedly and claimed it was about Himself. You remember when He went to the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of His ministry, He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah and He found the place where it was said and then He quotes the passage that describes Messiah and then He tells the audience, in this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears. He took credit for being the person that Isaiah was speaking of. How did He know? This text, how did he learn it? How did he know it applied to him? The Scriptures don't tell us, but he knew it. He had studied it. He read it. He understood it. He told other people that Moses wrote about me. Of course, they denied that. But Christ knew that Moses wrote about him. How did he know it? The Scriptures don't tell us. The Lord Jesus appropriated the name of Jehovah Yahweh, I Am, to Himself multiple times, especially in the Gospel of Mark at His trial and in the Gospel of John repeatedly, Jesus knew that He is God of very God. Well, how did He know that? The Scriptures don't tell us. But of the fact that He knew it, we can be sure because He proclaimed it so. He knew intimate facts about Abraham that aren't in the Scripture. Remember, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's not in the Bible anywhere that I know of, and yet Christ knew it. So Christ's knowledge was far above our knowledge, even in His humanity. And people can quibble about whether He knew the day and hour of His second coming, which He said He did not know, but what he knew about God's decree that he must die is simply indisputable. And people who deny it 
deny it to the peril of their soul. They're blaspheming the Lord Jesus. Why? Because it is revealed in the Old Testament by Christ Himself. So at the very least, all Christ had to do in His humanity was read and study the Scriptures and notice the things He had told the prophets about Himself and understand them as He clearly did. All Jesus would have had to do to know God's decree was to study Scripture. In Psalm 16 at verse 8, for example, He talks about the Lord always being before me. At my right hand I shall not be moved. My heart is glad. My glory rejoiceth. My flesh shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That text alone informs Christ in His humanity of His death and of His resurrection. In Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know Christ knew this applied to Him. He quoted it on the cross. And it goes on to describe the sufferings of the cross and the humiliations of the cross and the scoffing of the people that sat around the cross. He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And the psalmist cries out, and this is the words of Christ given to the psalmist over the tragedy of the crucifixion. But then at the end, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise Him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All ye the seed of Israel. This is spoken by the man who has just lamented and wept over the horror of the crucifixion that was to Christ. And then he says this, For he that is God hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. The Lord Jesus knew, if by no other reason than reading this text and thinking and studying about it, that he would be crucified, that he would be cruelly treated, and that in the end God would deliver him at the resurrection, at his resurrection and that God would not, as it might appear, hold His suffering and affliction in contempt, but would hear Him when He cried, and would deliver Him, and would treat that affliction which Christ suffered under as something of profound Value. And then in Psalm 40, we know this psalm well. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. My ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And Christ here is speaking through the psalmist about His incarnation, His being clothed in humanity, about His being made an offering for sin. And then he says at verse 11, Withhold not thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me, for innumerable evils have compassed me about mine iniquities, have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore my heart faileth in me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Here Christ is even telling the prophet David in this case of our sins being laid upon Him and Him owning our iniquities as His own and crying out for deliverance. And then in Psalm 69, we know these texts well. 
They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. O Lord, Thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from me. Let not them that wait on Thee, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let them not be confounded for my sake, because for Thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered me. The zeal of Thine house hath eaten me up. The reproaches of them that reproach Thee are fallen upon me. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. And then he prays for deliverance. He prays for deliverance. Let not the flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Draw not unto my soul. Redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken mine heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Christ had only to study and read and know the meaning of this text to know the depths of the sorrow and the apparent hopelessness of his case and his cry for deliverance. You see, in Gethsemane, Christ is fulfilling what he told David would happen to him in his prayers for deliverance. And yet, he already knew what must be. In Isaiah 50, at verse 4, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to the weary. The Lord hath opened mine ear and I was not rebellious nor turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Here is another example of Christ's teaching the prophet Isaiah about the death and the suffering and the confusion that he must face in his humanity. And of course, Isaiah 52 Thy servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus, when he read this in his humanity in the incarnation, he knew it was talking about him. And then in Isaiah 53, of course, he knew that he would be despised and rejected of men. He knew that He would carry our griefs and our sorrows, and that He would be stricken by God and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised for us, that all of His people would be like sheep gone astray, but the Lord would lay on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He opened not His mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush Him. He hath put Him to grief. You have made His soul an offering for sin. You have seen the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. 
He shall justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. He poured out His soul into death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many. Christ knew that was about Him in His humanity when He read it, when He studied it. And of course, we've already mentioned the passage in Zechariah 13 where the Lord Jesus actually quoted the night He was betrayed before He wept in the garden that God would awaken His sword of wrath against His shepherd, His anointed. I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Christ quoted God as promising. Jesus cited it about Himself. And Jesus knew all of these things. In His humanity, He knew them, if for no other reason than that He read the Scriptures. You remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The Spirit of Christ is the one who testified to all these prophecies which we've just reviewed quickly. That was the Holy Ghost from Jesus Christ Himself testifying of what should befall Christ, the sufferings and the glory that should be revealed in Him. So even if He in His humanity had to learn them by reading what the prophets had recorded, He Himself had told them by the Holy Ghost, then that's what He did. So anyone who wants to say that Christ didn't know what the decree of God was with regard to His suffering and dying and bearing the sin of His people, they're just incredibly ignorant of God's Word or they're liars. Not only so, but Jesus clearly taught His disciples these very things that He knew. Matthew 16 at verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples, how He must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, be raised again the third day. Then Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him, saying, Be it far from Thee, Lord, this shall not be unto Thee. But He turned and said unto Peter, Get Thee behind Me, Satan, for Thou art an offense unto Me, for Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. See, in the olden days, the Lord Jesus had to face people who wanted to pretend that God's Word wouldn't be fulfilled, or that if it was to be fulfilled, they should deny it, pretend like that wasn't the case, and that Jesus should not go along with it. And the Lord rebuked them what as agents of Satan trying to overthrow the decree of God and the obedience of Christ in His humanity to that decree. And then Matthew 17, verse 22. While they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill Him, and the third day He shall rise again. But they were exceedingly sorry. And in Luke 9 at verse 43, they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. This is after Jesus healed the, the demonically possessed son of the man who cried out, Strengthen my faith. But while they wondered every one, at all the things which Jesus did, He said to His disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask Him of that saying. 
Then in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed under the chief priests and under the scribes and they shall condemn Him to death and shall deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify Him and the third day He shall rise again. Can it be any clearer than that that the Lord Jesus certainly knew what it was that was to befall Him, what it was that God had ordained and decreed and that there was not any going back on that He knew in His humanity and conveyed to His disciples the truth of these things. Then in John chapter 12, you remember this story where Mary brought and anointed the Lord Jesus what it was at six days before the Passover at Bethany at a feast to celebrate Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And she took this alabaster box and broke it and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped His feet with her hair, and other people, especially Judas Iscariot, they sneered at her and they said this was a waste. It could have been spent on the poor. And uh, that was because He was a thief. Then Jesus said, Let her alone against the day of My burying. Hath she kept this? There Christ is signifying that He knows He is to die and that this work of Mary was ordained by God as a pre-anointing of Christ. You remember, she would not be allowed to anoint Him. She would not be allowed to anoint Him after He died because He rose again on the third day before she got a chance to. God had provided that He should be properly anointed even though He would be raised from the dead. Jesus declared His knowledge of what God had determined before to do to Him and His distress and obedience to it. When the Gentiles came to see Jesus, you remember in John chapter 12, the Gentiles come, we would see Jesus. And Jesus said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Here's a reference, a metaphorical reference to His dying in order to bring life to Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles can't come to Christ until He has that ready-made salvation ready to be given to those who trust in Him. And now's the time. Son of Man should be glorified. That doesn't just refer to His resurrection and exaltation. It refers to His crucifixion. His sacrifice is His glory. He was to be glorified as God's Lamb on the cross. But then notice what He says at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Here's a repeating statement of what we now know Jesus knew in His humanity. That it was for the cause of being put to death on the cross to save His people that Jesus came to this hour. It was determined already beforehand that He should do this. And His soul is troubled about it. It's a problem. It's a terror to Him in His humanity. And yet, this was the reason that He came into this world. And the reason He came to this point. And He would not pray to His Father to save Him from this hour. And if He prayed such, 
he knew that it would not be accomplished until he had laid down his life and been crucified and slain. It was only answered at his resurrection. And then at verse 32, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So Christ in his humanity knows he's to be crucified and lifted up on the cross. Even though the people object that when we heard Messiah was supposed to live forever. And now you're saying the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be crucified. How do we, how do we square that? And what does Jesus respond? Listen to what I have to say and walk in the light that I give you. Otherwise, you'll be in darkness and ignorance. And then he departs from them. So you see, against the false teachers who blaspheme and pile blasphemy on top of blasphemy, the case is conclusive. Jesus knew all about what God had ordained would come to pass against Him in all His sufferings and death for us, and yet Christ prayed for deliverance and wept and mourned the physical terror that He knew He must endure. And thereby He puts the lie to the false teaching that claims God's eternal decree is incompatible with our questions and sorrow against sin and wickedness and our prayers for deliverance and salvation for our loved ones, those who mock these doctrines would shut up our Savior who, unlike us, already knew what was to come to pass, what God had commanded and would certainly bring about, and yet He prayed in this matter and in these ways. False teachers have no compunction about lying about Jesus, denigrating Him, if that's what it takes to uphold their heretical views. Now, to be consistent, no doubt God ordained these false teachers to teach their false doctrine, to blaspheme Christ, why would he do that? Well, how about to draw out the truth about Jesus for us? His glory, His humanity, His love for His people, His love for life, and yet His obedience to be the sacrifice. You know, these false teachers drive us to the Scripture to search out the truth about Jesus, the truth about what He knew, and the truth about what He said, and the truth about how He submitted to the Father's will, even as He prayed for deliverance. Praise God, nobody could stop Jesus from His obedience, and from His fear, and from His sorrow, and from His prayers. All of those are compatible together. Peter couldn't stop Him. The wicked men in His day could not stop Him. The devil himself couldn't stop him. And certainly filthy blasphemers today are not going to stop him and are not going to be victorious in trying to overthrow the honor and the majesty and the knowledge that Jesus in His humanity had. No matter what anybody says, the Lamb is all the glory. Isn't it? It's all the glory. I thought the words of the song we sang this morning were particularly appropriate. Jesus our Lord, with what joy we adore Thee, chanting our praise to Thyself on the throne. 
Blessed in thy presence we worship before thee. Own thou art worthy and worthy alone. Verily God yet became truly man. Lower than angels to die in our stead. How hast thou long promised seed of the woman trod on the serpent and bruised his head? How didst thou humble thyself to be taken, led by thy creatures and nailed to the cross, hated of men and of God, too forsaken, shunning not darkness, the curse and the loss? How hast thou triumphed and triumphed with glory? Battled death's forces rolled back every wave. Can we refrain then from telling this story? Lord, thou art victor, or death in the grave. Lord, thou art worthy. Lord, thou art worthy. Lord, thou art worthy and worthy alone. Blessed in thy presence, we worship before thee. Own thou art worthy and worthy alone. And so around the Lord's table, we remember what Jesus did for us and how even in His humanity He knew all of that would take place. And He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And the Lord's table reminds us of that body that was broken for us, that blood that was poured out to make an atonement for our sin, by which our sins are forgiven. We who have trusted in Jesus and His promises to save us. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table. We'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the real blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed for the remission of our sin. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son, who is the Lamb that was slain for us on the cross. Thank You that He poured out His blood. He gave His life, an atonement for sin, so that we might be redeemed. He satisfied all the demands of divine justice so that we might be rescued. Oh God, we thank You that Jesus knew what He was doing. He wasn't in any way insensate to the offering which He must make and set His face like flint to go to Jerusalem to accomplish that sacrifice. He had no ignorance at all in the matter of what You had decreed from before the foundation of the world. And we thank You that He so clearly expressed His understanding and knowledge of these things so that He knew what was determined to take place. And it was not at all inconsistent with that that He prayed for a possible deliverance and cried out His anguish and grief. Help us to have the same attitude, to submit like Christ submitted to whatever Your will is and at the same time to come before You with our requests and our prayers and not to believe in any way that either of those positions is incompatible with the other and not to in any way be discouraged from crying out to You in times of distress and trouble and to know that You will do what is best for Your people 
And in the end, one day we'll admit that what it is you had decreed from the beginning was better than whatever things we prayed for if they were in any way contradictory. And yet, you're pleased to have your people come to you just as you're pleased to have your dear Son come to you in our prayers and in our cries. We thank you for this cup that pictures the blood that He shed for us by which we're cleansed of all unrighteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 93. In the black book, majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me, He bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. Number 93.